Amen. Thank you, Jay. Nice thought. Good job on getting your Bible to Job chapter 1. I'm glad that Jesus is the friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Of course, he's first a Savior. But if he's your Savior, he wants to be a friend. Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. I've enjoyed our summer Wednesdays as... uh, We've had our young men here each take turns, and that's been a blessing. Uh, To me, it's been a blessing to the Lord's church here. I know it's uh, a blessing to uh, them. It's good to watch them grow as men and as followers of Christ. Uh, It's good for you to hear them. You know, um, I hope you never take for granted uh, the privilege God has given us to help and train and instruct and develop young men here at Bible Baptist Church. But now we're out of the summer mode, we're getting back into what you might call normal mode, and I want to start a new book study. Uh, most of you that uh, have been here any length of time know that I like uh, variety in preaching and teaching. Um, it's fine if some people want to just go verse by verse, service after service, and that makes them happy, that's fine, that's certainly an acceptable way to preach and teach the Bible, uh, but there are no examples of anybody preaching like that in the Bible. Uh, Jesus did not teach anything verse by verse. Paul didn't teach anything verse by verse. Peter didn't teach anything verse by verse. There are a lot of their messages in there. And so it's certainly not the only way you can preach and teach the Bible. And so I like to vary from subject series to verse by verse stuff to random subjects. And um, tonight I want to begin studying the book of Job together. It was in my heart. Uh, Many here are at least familiar with Uh, the earlier chapters of the book, Uh, but many of us who are Bible readers, I hope you're a Bible reader, I would to God that every member of Bible Baptist Church read through the Bible at least once uh, every year. Uh, Seven times the Gospels record five instances of Jesus saying to someone, have ye not read? Uh, He expected the Jews to have read their scriptures. And, uh, but those of us who are Bible readers, if you've read through the book of Job, uh, we kind of get bogged down uh, a bit in the middle chapters, and I uh, hope uh, God will give me some wisdom on how to handle them when we get to those. But the book of Go- Job gives at least a partial answer to one of life's most perplexing questions. Why do the righteous suffer? See, in our way of thinking, uh, the wicked should suffer in this life for their wickedness, And the righteous should always be rewarded and lifted above most of the difficulties of life. But you don't have to live for very long. You don't have to look around very far to find the wicked at times prospering and the righteous suffering. Very often not suffering for things that they brought on themselves, but suffering for things out of their control. Uh, And even though we know in our mind that this life is just a stepping stone to the next life. Uh, Many believers, uh, we struggle with looking at life's events as if this life is all there is. You see, because we don't look at this life as being a stepping stone, we often really struggle with this issue. Why do the righteous suffer? And most of us, let's just be honest, we wish that if we lived a righteous life, It meant that our family and us, we would not face any tragedies, but we know tragedies find us all. 
Now it is true, people who live willfully defiant lives of God, they do have more bad things happen in life because sin always brings death of some sort to something. But living righteously, it does not exempt us from tragedy or difficulty any more than it did Job. wonder what we can learn and apply from the life of Job and what God can use from the book of Job to shape you and my eye more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. Uh, now before we start, there's a lot we do not know about the book of Job. We don't know when the book of Job was written. It was likely written in what are called the patriarchal days and maybe even most likely during the days of Jacob. And uh, some people, uh, they claim Job is the oldest book in the Old Testament because the book of Genesis was written by Moses, and that was written several hundred years after uh, Genesis 50 closes out with the death of Jacob and Joseph. Uh, but the book of Job is generally placed in what are called the patriarchal days, the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for several reasons. I mean, first, uh, Job acted like the high priest of his family. Uh, that's not what men do today. We don't we're not the high priests of our extended family, but in the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that was so. It's also placed them because of Job's lifespan. It's also placed there because in all the back and forth between Job and uh, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, uh, all the back and forth between any of them, uh, nothing is mentioned from the Mosaic Law at all. So we don't know when the book was written. We also don't know where Job lived. The book begins, and we'll read it in a moment, that he lived in the land of Uz. But even though Uz is likely somewhere in the Middle East, no one is certain where it was, uh, though a lot of different places have been suggested. It's not only we don't know when the book was written, and we don't know where Job lived, we don't know who the human author of the book was. Some speculate Moses, others speculate Ezra, some Solomon, some Job himself, some even speculate Elihu, and Elihu is a guy who will appear in the later chapters of the book of Job. And though uh, it's nice to know who the human pen was in the hand of God uh, for books in the Bible, in the end, God is the author of all Scripture. And so... <laughs> The book of Job, even though we don't know who the human pen was, it was God's words. Now, though there's plenty we don't know about Job and the book bearing his name, there are many lessons and great truths that are recorded for us in this book. Now, a lot of the books of the Bible, maybe all of them, uh, with a couple of exceptions, have what people would call a main theme or a primary purpose. Uh, people argue over the primary purpose for the book of Job. In addition to answering the question, why do the righteous suffer? Uh, I believe, and many others also believe, uh, an equally great purpose of the book is to teach us that no matter how good we are compared to people, we still need to repent and grow. Uh, one of the main teachings about, from the book of Job is repentance. And though if you and I were God, we would exclusively teach repentance by men who had great evils in their life who changed, uh, like Moses who committed murder, and Paul who persecuted Christians, 
we would like to teach repentance through people like that, and God does that as well. Uh, in the book of Job, God is going to teach us that the most righteous among us still need to repent and grow. Uh, let me say that again, because I think this is a truth that those who have been uh, in Christ for decades, we lose sight of. We think repentance and growth is for all the younger people. But By the way, that's why we don't have hardly any old people come to the altar. We put chairs there with arms on them so that older folks who couldn't get down to their knees now just have to sit and you can get back up. We bought six because if I, didn't, I didn't know if four would be enough. We don't even need two. And at the root of all that, is the fact that after we've been in Christ for a while, we don't feel like we need any more growth and we don't feel like we need any more repentance and the book of Job is there to teach us that that's just not true. The most faithful believers still need to recognize that we are sinners and we need the Lord's mercy and forgiveness and grace for our sins too. Everyone here, including me, we still have room for growth to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Job's case, it took God stripping Job of all of his security and all of his success in life and all of his family to get to see himself like he should have saw himself all along as a faithful believer and follower of Jehovah. I wonder what we can learn and apply from the life of Job and the book of Job to shape us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ? It's a great question. You're able to stand if you would stand tonight, please, in honor of God's word to tell of my thought is the faithful family man. The faithful family man. Job chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright, one that feared God and eschewed evil. And there was born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 she-asses in a very great household. So that this man was the greatest of all the men of the east. And his sons went and feasted in their houses every one his day and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. And it was so, and the days of their feasting were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Thank you, you might be seated. Those in academic circles divide the Old Testament into three parts, the law, the prophets, and the psalms, or poetical books. In fact, Jesus himself uh, divided the Old Testament that way. Uh, also, in Luke 24, 44, he said that the law and the prophets and the psalms all spoke of him. Now, the section of book that is called the poetical books, or the psalms, uh, it includes Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, and Lamentations. Now, calling them the poetical books or 
calling them as a group, the Psalms, it doesn't diminish their value. It does not diminish their importance. It is just a simple description of the form in which they're written. That's important we understand as we begin. The book of Job is not an allegory. Job is a historical figure. He was referred to as a literal man in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Keep your hand there. Go in your Bible to Ezekiel 14. Ezekiel 14. And here in Ezekiel 14, 14, Ezekiel is going to refer to Job alongside Noah and Daniel as a historical figure. Uh, Ezekiel 14, uh, 14 says, Though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, that's in Jerusalem and Judah, uh, they should deliver but their own souls by their righteousness, saith the Lord God. By the way, Job was a literal historical figure. He's noted here for his righteousness. He was a real man. We won't turn there, but if you take notes, write down James 5.11 because James refers to the patience of Job as being the model kind of godly patience. Now, we might not look at Job overall in this book as being a patient man, but God did look at him that way. It's important that we understand that Job is not an allegory of some parable human being is a real man because him being a real man, it puts everything that happens in perspective. He was a real man with a real wife, with a real family, with the same emotions, the same struggles, the same issues with his faith and family and friends that you and I have. And we understand that Job was a real man, a historical figure. It makes his story, when we read it, very personal. See, too often I think we make the mistake of detaching these great men and women in the Bible from real people. We somehow have the, uh, this idea that we're real people and they were not, when in reality they were real people just like us, who in many cases differ from us simply in the fact that when their faith was deeply challenged, they made a different choice than some of us make at times. They're real people. This book is, this five-verse introduction begins with the Holy Spirit's assessment of Job's character and life. In verse 1, it says that he was a, perf- a man that was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. Uh, it's a wonderful thing when our peers or our family and close friends assess our life and our character in a positive way, but this is not the voice of an admirer, this is not the voice of a friend, this is not the voice of a family member, this is the Holy Spirit's description of this man named Job. His description begins by the fact he's described as perfect. Perfect, when you read it in your Bible, does not mean flawlessly or sinlessly perfect. Perfect in the Bible means to be complete or mature. Very much like you might go out uh, with your spouse on on, on a date and say, we had a perfect night. Or you might talk to a young couple uh, and they might say, oh, we're perfect for each other. It, it doesn't mean that there's not anything wrong. It's just complete. It's mature. And, and Job was complete and mature. And he secondly described as being upright. That means honorable, honest, righteous. He was a doer of right as God defines what's right. 
And I remind everyone as we read this description of Job, he, he didn't live in America. He lived in the pagan ancient world. A world filled with idolatry, a world filled with immorality, a world that did not have the Mosaic law to specify God's moral commandments. Man had only his conscience with the laws of God written on him at that time. That's all man had. And despite all that, Job was perfect and he was upright. And then it says that he feared God. If anybody ever tells you you don't need to fear God, they're not telling you the whole story. If they tell you you need to live in fear of God, they're also not telling you the whole story. A healthy fear of God is not you and I waiting around like God is some ogre waiting to hit us with a hammer for a small offense. That's an unhealthy fear of God. A healthy fear of God is when we recognize that, well, you know what? If I just willfully defy what I know God has said to be right, that God has consequences bringing my way. He was perfect, he was upright, he feared God in a pagan world. It says he eschewed evil. To eschew is to deliberately avoid and purposely abstain from evil. Job purposely avoided anything with an evil connotation and purposely refused to willfully defy God. Purposely. He actively did what was good and right he actively avoided what God had forbidden. Let me ask you, do these qualities describe you as a follower of Jesus? By the way, they never perfectly describe all of us. They're qualities that we ought to be striving to build in our life by the grace of God. But you and I, do, do, are you, could you be described like this? I hope so. You see, all of these are actually their choices. Job wasn't born naturally obedient to God or naturally yielded to God any more than any of us are. Job, by faith, chose to become this kind of man. Now, we really don't know all of what Job knew about God without the Mosaic Law defining how our Creator views the details of what's right and wrong. But Job did understand the basics. Keep your hand there. Go to Job chapter 24. The middle chapters of the book of Job are a, I don't know, you could call it a discussion, you could call it a debate, uh, you could call it a lot of different things between Job and his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zohar, Zophar. But notice Job understanding the basics. Remember, he didn't have a written word of God. There was no written word of God to Moses. Verse 13 of chapter 24, Job here says, They are those uh, that rebel against the light. They know not the ways thereof, nor abide in the pastor of the murderer, rising with the light, killeth the poor and needy in the night is as a thief. Uh, the eye also of the adulterer waiteth for the twilight, saying, No eye shall see me, and disguiseth his face. And notice there, I mean, Job understood that murder... <laughs> taking advantage of the poor, being a thief and adultery. He understood those things were wrong. He had a conscience. Uh, Job actually knew a lot about the character of God. Uh, listen, though we don't know who it was, God has always had faithful witnesses. He may have known Abraham. He may have known Isaac. And if he knew Jacob, that probably wouldn't have helped him for most of his life. Jacob didn't have a good 
testimony for most of his life. But some way or some way or another, Job knew God. Now in those days, prior to a written revelation from God, God most often revealed himself through dreams or angels. And we see that a lot in the days of Abraham and, and, and Isaac and, and even Jacob. We don't know how Job knew so much about God, but he knew more than he could have known from his conscience. You can go back to chapter 1, because in the words of the Holy Spirit, Job had a great testimony for his God. And hear me when I say, if Job made these kinds of choices, in that time, a pagan time, an idolatrous time with no written Bible, the Holy Spirit not living in him like he lives in us, no completed New Testament, no looking back in the life of the Lord Jesus like we have. If Job could live perfect and upright and uh, fear God healthily and uh, eschew evil, you and I can do so today also. And I would to God we'd choose to do that. Introduction then continues by describing Job's family. He had ten children and they seem to be grown by the time of our story in verse 2. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. Now, unlike Abraham, Job only had one wife. And that was God's intention from the beginning. Now, it was very common in that time, if you were someone of means, for you to have multiple wives. Uh, Job had means, he was very wealthy, but he had one wife. That pleased God. Anybody besides me ever see that sister's wife show? And you think to yourself, ma'am, why? That's Sorry, sidetrack. Job's children, they were close with each other. Every parent here, as we raise our children, we hope that this will be the way they interact when they become adults. Uh, In fact, they would go to each other's house on their birthdays to celebrate. And they were old enough to have their own houses. In verse 4, his sons went and feasted in their houses, every one his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. Now, that phrase there, his day, it's defined in chapter 3, in verse 1. If you just go there, as Job begins to speak in verse 1, it says, and after this Job, op- after this opened Job his mouth, and cursed his day. And Job spake and said, let the day perish when I was born, the night in which it was said, there's a man-child conceived. So what is his day? His day is his birthday. And so his sons would feast and celebrate at their house on the birthday. They'd invite their uh, sisters. And I I bring that up uh, probably most of all because Jehovah Witnesses, they tell you you shouldn't celebrate birthdays. Uh, this man, Job, who was perfect and upright and had a healthy fear of God and astute evil, who we'll learn in coming weeks that he was literally the most righteous and faithful man on the entire planet, he celebrated birthdays with his family. Now, it doesn't mean you're ungodly or unrighteous if you don't, but it also means that it's not unrighteous to have a birthday party. And though they're not mentioned... If Job has ten children, and they're old enough to have a house, and they come from a family with a godly mom and dad who valued marriage, it'd be highly 
surprising, even though they're not mentioned at all, that some of these were not married. Now in verse 4, it says that they called for their sisters to eat and to drink with them. And if you have a critical attitude, you could say, well, yeah, they were just over there partying. But if you have, uh, by the way, the Bible says love thinketh no evil. And that means it's not a good thing when our first thought is to interpret anything that's said or done in a bad light. That's not the first thing that we should think of. Because in verse 5, Job was concerned about the hearts of his children. We'll get to that in, in a moment. So we saw how it begins with his character and faith. It continues describing his family. And then now it continues by describing Job's wealth. He was the wealthiest man in his region. And by the way, I want to take a moment on this because if we don't take time to understand this, we do not understand what it means to have this taken away in one day. Notice in verse 3, his substance also was 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 she-asses, a very great household, so that this man was the greatest of all men uh, of the East. Uh, Now, if he had 7,000 sheep and one shepherd could watch 50 sheep, he had 140 shepherds under his employment. And that doesn't count uh, whoever took care of getting the sheep's food or whoever took care of uh, managing the wool that was cut off of them or any kind of shelter they had. Uh, I mean, 140 shepherds. If you had 3,000 camels, what that means is that Job was in the transportation business. I mean, people didn't eat camels. Camels were used for transportation. And so if you had one camel herder for every 25 camels, Job had 120 camel managers. And again, that doesn't count however many people it took to manage the goods that they were transporting, to uh, provide shelter or sell any of the goods that these camels were transporting. Uh, I mean, that's 120 people just to manage the camels if you could actually manage 120 camels as an individual. Job had 500 yoke of oxen. That means he had 500 men involved in just plowing his land. That doesn't include however many people it took to Uh, provide the shelter and food for a thousand oxen. A yoke is two. I mean, think about it. I'm told a yoke of oxen can plow one acre of land in 12 hours. That means if they spent three six-day weeks plowing, that means Job either owned or managed about 9,000 acres. I mean, think about that in a day and age when there's no tractors, no technological help whatsoever, When it says Job was the greatest man of these, I mean, listen, he had a lot of people that looked to him. He had 500 female donkeys. If one employee could manage 25, there are 25 employees managing his female donkeys. I'm sure he had 500 female donkeys, so each year they could be bred and have the young males sold. Now, this doesn't really sound appealing to me, but I'm told that donkey milk was a delicacy in the Middle East at that time. Uh, you know, I do like to try new things, but I got to tell you, if you handed me a cup of worn donkey milk, I might say, eh. A lot of people to manage his donkeys. 
I, I mean, if you just add those together, not counting any peripheral people, and there certainly were a lot of them. I mean, there were 800 men, 800 families who looked to Job to manage his business in a manner that kept them employed and took care of their families. After all, Job was mature. He was upright. He feared God, avoided evil as a business owner. One can only imagine the weight of responsibility Job felt. Hey, hey listen, he's not some heartless pagan. He's a man who believed in Jehovah God. He's a man who cared about people. You can imagine the weight he would feel to provide uh, and have his business continue to be successful so that all the families and men that looked to him could be taken care of. Yet in all that success, Job was a great reflection of his God. At a time when most people wouldn't even know God if it were not for someone like Job, and in a situation where a lot of people forsake God. There's not a lot of really wealthy people who are in the faith. And the kind of independence and independent thinking that gets involved when you're that successful causes people, I don't need the church. I don't need those Christian people. I don't need a pastor. Job was not like that. In fact, later on as he's talking, he describes the kind of person that he was. Keep your hand there, but go up to Job 29. We're just trying to get a picture of who this guy was. You know, again, those of you who are familiar with the story, we, we, we're familiar with what happened to him. We don't properly wait who he was. <clears throat> I mean, here we are in the light of the life of the Lord Jesus and the completed New Testament, and we try to be faithful followers of, of Jesus, and, you know, one bad thing happens to us, and we're like, oh, it's just not worth it. They, were, they said something about me in the church. The preacher was mean to me. Uh, it's just our problems are nothing compared to what this godly man is going to face. Notice how Job describes himself prior to the, what's going to happen to him. Job 29, beginning in verse 7. When I went out to the gate through the city, when I prepared my seat in the street, the young men saw me and hid themselves. The aged arose and stood up. The princes refrained talking. They laid their hand on their mouths. The nobles held their peace and their tongue cleaved to the roof of their mouths. When the ear heard me, then it blessed me. When the eye saw me, it gave me witness, because I delivered the poor that cried, and the fatherless, and him that had none to help him. The blessing of him that was ready to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. Jump up to verse 21. He says, Unto me men gave ear and waited, kept silence at my counsel. After my words, they spake not again. My speech dropped upon them. They waited for me as for the rain, and they opened their mouth wide as for the latter rain. If I laughed on them, they believed it not. In the light of my countenance, they cast not down. I chose out their way and sat chief and dwelt as a king in the army and one that comforteth the mourners. You can go back to chapter 1. Do you see the kind of man Job was? I mean, he wasn't just a rich man who 
had faith who was aloof and distant. This is a guy who was perfect and upright, and he feared God, and he eschewed evil, and he was in there helping the poor. He was helping the widows. He was somebody who sat in the gate of the city and, and gave justice and judgment to the people that came by. And if you were struggling and hurting, you could look to Job. You see, what we do in business and life really reflects what we are in our heart. How we handle people's wages, how we treat customers and employees reflects our heart. How we handle the poor, how we handle widows, how we handle those who are in need, it reflects our heart. I just want to begin as we think about Job, his faith cast a big shadow, his faith and his character cast a big shadow an entire region. You know, every believer in Jesus Christ ought to be living for the Lord in such a way that our faith casts a shadow of our Savior. Hear me when I say it is not acceptable to pretend to be one thing in the church and make no effort to be that in our homes or our workplaces or among our family and friends. It is not acceptable. Our shadow as followers of believers in the shape of the Lord Jesus Christ ought to fall first on those who are closest to us, first on our own spouse and first on our own children and first on those who know us best and our shadow for Christ and our faith ought to also fall on anyone who is in any sort of our uh, close distance from us in the circle of our life. And as believers in Jesus Christ, though we all fail to be what we should be at moments, I hope tonight the shadow of your faith and the image of our Savior can be seen by those who know you best. In the introduction to Job, it concludes by describing Job's burden for his own family. In chapter 1 and verse 5, it says, And it was so, when the days of their feasting were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. You see the consistency of his faith. Thus did Job continually. Now some may read a bit much into this sparsely informative text, to say that Job offered sacrifices for his children because they were partying at their birthday, and though that's possible, it's very unlikely. Uh, listen, he's not offering a sacrifice for what they're doing. He's concerned about the sins in their hearts. You say, did he go to their birthday parties? I don't know. I don't know why he couldn't have offered a sacrifice early in the morning and gone to the party. Again, if you're just a critic and a skeptic, you can be a, you could say, well, he didn't go to the birthday parties. We don't really know, but we do know that there's a birthday party coming up that he's not going to be at. We do know this. Job had a burden for his adult children to be right with God. He was aware not just that murder and stealing and adultery were sinful and aware that his need was to be charitable. 
He also was aware of the fact that you need to offer a blood sacrifice to cover your sins. He was aware that you could sin against God in your heart. He was aware that you could sin against God with your eyes. That's why he said in Job 31.1, I've made a covenant with God that I will not sin with a maid with my eyes. He was aware. See, Job's burden for the salvation and right relationship of his children with their creator was not just a flash in the pan. It was continually on his mind, even though his children were grown. And if you're old enough here to have grown children, you understand me when I say uh, we don't get to make choices for our adult children. And they have to make their own choices. Uh, We get to point the arrow. That's what a parent does. But unlike a real arrow that has no mind of its own and no free will, our adult children are just like us. They do have a mind of their own and they do have a free will and sometimes they don't fly where we point them. Job was burdened and he never let that burden go. So as we finish this introduction to this book of Job and meet this key character, we find him that he was successful, he was respected, he was faithful, he was a family man, and if you and I were God, and we're not, this is the kind of man we would protect from adversity just to show everyone just how much easier and blessed it was to be faithful and believe. That's what we'd do if we were God. If you and I were God and we're not, we would be content with Job's maturity. We we would just overlook whatever minor flaws remained in his life because he had a sincere heart for God. If you and I were God, we we would be content here. Though it's quite an introduction to this great man, Job's story does not stop with his faithfulness, his wealth, and his solid home. I wonder what will happen as the scene changes from earth to heaven. The land of us to the presence of God. See, Job was a chosen vessel. God had a special and unique plan for Job's life, just like he has for the life of every one of us here in Christ. Hey, listen, regardless of who you are, regardless of whether you are in the public spotlight, God, when he came in your life in the person of Jesus Christ, has a unique and special plan for your life. And that plan continues as long as we continue. God's plan for Job wasn't over with his bright light in that pagan and idolatrous land of us. And if Job could be perfect, upright, and have a healthy fear of God and eschew evil in his day with no Bible in a pagan culture, then maybe it's time you and I stop whining about how hard it is to live for Jesus today. By the grace of God, we can. I wonder what will happen to this faithful family man. But that is for next time. If you bow your heads and close your eyes.